everyone. Welcome to Standing on the Shoulder of Giants. This is episode four. I am your co-host, Dave Griffith, here with the man quite literally standing on the shoulders of Giants, Max Krug. Max, say hey to everyone. Hey, everyone. Thanks for having me on today. Looking for a great discussion, <laughs> as always. Absolutely. No. Yes. So, uh, so, so Max and I are, are really excited. Um, if you guys have listened through episode four, you may say, hey, where did these guys come up with the, the, the name Standing on the Shoulders of Giants? Uh, well, we can 100% blame Max for this. And at the core, I mean, it's, it's a very regular, fairly famous saying when people who do really good work, such as Max, don't want to take all of the credit for themselves because they learned a lot of it from, from other people. Um, in this particular instance, uh, we, well, Max, a number of years ago, read a white paper called Standing on the Shoulders of Giants. It's the production concepts, concepts versus the production applications. Um, it's the Hitachi Tool Engineering example by Dr. Ellie Goldratt. And after hearing that and talking about all of the different kind of forms of like thought processes in manufacturing, we absolutely could not think of a better, uh, you know, better thing to, to go ahead and name the show. Um, Max, do you have some, some thoughts on, uh, how we came up with the name of the show? Yeah. So we wanted to come up with a name that would, um, not be specific to any industry or any type of company. So we were struggling on what to call it. And, you know, I said, well, really, we're going to talk about philosophies and different techniques Mm -hmm. and methods and so forth that the, what we call the giants developed and talk about the depth of the knowledge that was developed and why it was developed and how it still is relevant today. And so when we look at the article that Dr. Golrat wrote, he referenced Henry Ford and Taiochi Ono and his own philosophies. We're going to expand a little bit and talk about Deming and Duran and some of the others that um, are famous and have written a lot of articles and books and have tons of knowledge about, you know, operations and production systems and companies. And so we want to encompass all that into our show um, name. Absolutely. And, uh, and to your point, Max, as you and I have discussed this, and as we're getting ready for this particular show, I mean, I think it's very interesting kind of at the core many of these concepts kind of boil down to Dr. Deming and his original 14 points in which he had that many of kind of the rest of this has been built around. And I don't think that anyone who is working today or in the last even 30 or 40 years would have been able to get to the point that they are with their thought processes and their philosophies and especially their implementations uh, without being able to read some of the great works and work with some of the great minds of, you know, kind of all of industrial, all of manufacturing, maybe just kind of generally the whole world. Yes. And um, I'm also amazed when I do my training, I talk about Deming and I'm amazed how many people have never heard of Deming. So typically the older people in the classroom, I'd say 40 plus have heard of Deming, but under 40, almost nobody's ever heard of Deming, which is amazing to me because of the knowledge and foundation that he laid, you know, for quality and also for productivity and 
and operations. Interesting. Why, why do you think that is, Max? Why do you think there's that generational gap? That's a great question. I'm not really sure. I don't know if it's, you know, the principles aren't being taught at the university level or the people that are reading the books aren't reading, you know, the books from periods before. I'm not really sure what it is. Interesting. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I would say that many times Max and I have gone on site or talked to potential clients and they are certainly missing many of the core thoughts or philosophies that we're going to talk about today. I would also say that many of them that aren't necessarily missing the core thoughts and philosophies don't necessarily understand how to implement the core thoughts and philosophies. And Max looks at them and he says like four or five sentences and their eyes just like go wide and they're like, how did I not know this? Like, like it was right there. How did I not necessarily understand it? So I, uh, I think that this is very exciting. Uh, yeah. So I think that this is very exciting. So let's go and kind of start with Dr. Demings, uh, 14 points for management as he entitled it and kind of go through and maybe do you want to like share your thoughts around, I guess, maybe the 14 points, Max, and how it kind of spawned, I don't know, basically everything else that has turned into quality in the last almost 100 years? Yeah, so if I look at his 14 points, I read down through them. The first thing that comes to mind for me is it's all about the culture, establishing the right culture within the organization. Yes. And so I've spent the last probably three years really focused on culture. And if I go into a company, a lot of people say, oh, we're different. What, what is different with it with every company is the culture. So if I go into a company, the one thing I can state is every culture is different. And I've seen yes. all types of cultures. And so you need to design the process and the systems that's going to fit your culture. So I think that's where the difference becomes. So when I go in and look and start analyzing the company and understanding and talking to people, I start to understand how things get done, how decisions get made. And it's a different culture. And so how, how I approach each company for implementation is a little bit different. Now, the principles that we're going to implement are the same, but how we go about implementing those is different. Okay. So his 14 points really focus on establishing the right culture, establishing the right mindset to really move the company forward in what we call the breakthrough improvement. So we're not looking for small incremental improvements. We're looking for big incremental breakthrough improvement steps of improvement of company performance. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. And I think it's interesting that at the end, most of this boils down to culture and it may not be, how do I fix my immediate problem? But I think, Deming's points and kind of almost everything that, that flows from it, you know, when you look at implementing, turns into how do I make this change and then continue the change, right? I yes. think Max and I and most people listening to this have seen someone come in and maybe they've helped enact a change, but if they leave two weeks or six months later, it takes a very short period of time to slide back to what the culture was 
And even if you implement world-class tools without a culture to use tools and ask questions and understand, you're never going to make the, those long-term changes. So I think that, that that's a very interesting concept. And I think that as we look at most of these, either the philosophies themselves or all of the people who implement successfully these philosophies have all kind of looked at the culture and how do I change the, the company of the culture? And I, I think maybe a good example is like the concept of companies that are really bought into lean um, and, and Six Sigma, like Six Sigma has their belts, right? And so yeah. many companies that are very much bought into that, you see lots, you see dozens of hundreds of green belts and dozens of black belts. Um, and would you say that some of that is, I mean, for the awards and accolades, Max, but would you say some of that is also uh, like to try to change the culture and to get people to think the same way? Yeah. So, you know, the idea is to get to me is to get the application of the tools correct so that people can mm -hmm. implement the tools correctly. So I see so many misapplications of the tools. And so I think a lot of these principles are, you know, understanding what to change, what to change to and how to create that change. And then more importantly, how to sustain that change. So that's what I focused on the last three years really is like, okay, how do we get agreement on what to change? How do we get agreement on what to change to? How do we get agreement on how to create that change? And then most importantly, how do we sustain that? So when we get an improvement, how do we sustain that over the long term? When you know employees are going to leave, new employees are going to come in. And I've seen a lot of employees get eat, eaten up by the culture. So yep. they come into an organization. It's like, oh, they're all gung ho. It's like, we're going to make great things. And then all of a sudden everything stops. It's like nobody will, mm -hmm. you know, they have ideas and their ideas get shot down. Then they try to implement something and it doesn't sustain. And then they get frustrated and then they either do two things. They leave the company or they conform to the culture. So it's extremely mm -hmm. difficult to change the culture. And Deming's point is it starts with leadership. So there's a lot of points that talk about leadership and setting the direction for the organization and leading the way. So not a dictatorship, right? Where it's yeah. top down, you're gonna do what I say. It's no leverage the knowledge of the workforce there's incredible amount of knowledge, experience, education in the workforce. How do we leverage that? So it's leadership's mm -hmm. goal to leverage that knowledge. It's not leadership's role to create the knowledge and enforce the knowledge. It's to leverage that knowledge that's already there. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I think that, that, that that's a very good point. So, I think Deming's 14 points that they kind of spawned a number of different kind of thought processes, right? So we, we've got uh, Toyota and from Toyota, we know that the, the concept of, well, I guess the Toyota production system, so TPS, but also lean um, came out of Toyota. Yep. And then we, th then we also have Six Sigma. We've got theory of constraints, so TOC that we've talked a little bit about. And we will certainly talk more about uh, later into this. And then we've got the whole TQM, so total quality manufacturing. Manu management. Management. I, 
I always get the M wrong. There are too many acronyms in this business, Max. Yes. Total quality management. Um, and, and so I, I really like, I really like all those. Do, do we want to maybe do a little comparing contrasting? Do we want to kind of talk about where they all uh, kind of connect? I, I, does that, would we like to start there? And then we can talk about how you've kind of taken them and, and worked off all of them to, to create what you're doing now, Max? Yeah. So um, theory constraints and lean are a lot more similar than what people think. It's all about establishing flow yeah, and yeah. lean looks at it more from establishing flow by reducing waste and theory constraints looks at improving flow by um, understanding where the constraints are and opening up the capacity in those constraints. And we're still, when we open up capacity, we're reducing waste, right? So we're looking at where the capacity constraints and we're going in and we're applying the tools that eliminate the non-value added stuff. Yes. So lean and theory constraints from a philosophical point of view are very similar in my opinion is how we go about looking at the system is a little bit different. Mm -hmm. um, TQM and Six Sigma that to me spawned off from TQM is about understanding variability. Mm -hmm. So we have variation in the processes everywhere. And of course, excessive variation causes non-conforming processes or processes that not function properly. So to get stability, you need both. You need flow and you need um, stability in terms of controlling the variation in the process. Mm -hmm. So the two work hand in hand. They're not um, independent from each other. So to get stability in an operation, I don't care if it's a bank, if it's a, a continuous flow, a discrete operator operation, a distribution company, a medical service, a hospital, it's all about flow and stability. We get stability by having stable, capable processes, and we create flow by managing the workflow through the system. So all the tools apply in every environment. And a lot of people don't think it's like, oh, we're different, right? It's like, <laughs> <laughs> but if we use the foundation of what those tools are trying to do, it's about flow in a stable environment. All the okay. tools are there to achieve that. Okay. So we would say that all of the tools want to, we all want to kind of find the same end, right? We want to yep. help companies. I, I like, we want them to help them be more, more, uh efficient right we want them to at the end of the day be more profitable it's just perhaps the the directions that we go along doing that is yes. is a little different yes um, and it's the previous session we talked about productivity it's getting yes. more results from the system using the existing resources so it's yes. all about that uh, I would agree with that. I would say, I think we should make the, the you, I think you made a really good point, Max, about theory of constraints, so TOC and lean being similar, that they both focus on flow. I think that the, your, your concept, I think your statement was something about how leans reduces waste. I feel like, at least in the United States, as Max and I have discussed in the last, you know, 10 to 20 years, 
the the concept of lean is we come in and we just cut costs and cut and cut and cut. Uh, I, I think that the original concept of reduced waste was more so reduce waste in movement, right? So, so we're trying to be as efficient as possible for our workers in the line. We are trying to do our very best. I, I think I, I was reading something um, in the early days um, where Ono was talking about how, I, Max, correct me if I'm wrong, something to the effect of basically someone lives like half of their life working at this job we need to, at its core, kind of make sure that we do not like waste the person's life. Are you familiar with that that, that statement? Yes. No, I'm not familiar with that statement, but I understand okay. it. <laughs> okay. Yes. And and so so when I think about reducing waste, I think it, I, I I think that one really resonated with me because you see a lot of people doing a lot of the same tasks that are either super repetitive that one could you know in theory automate and literally bring the quality of that person's life um, up as opposed to the, the concept of, hey, we can just continue to have all of this, you know, continuous, the, the same movement and all of the movement in, in and of itself is is waste. And so I think that there is a good, uh, good point to be made about how the concept of lean is not necessarily I'm going to cut in and slash budgets by 20 percent. Good luck. I've just reduced waste by 20 percent. Um, the, the, the concept of reducing waste is to uh, allow flow. the line to, yes, yes, allow the lines to flow. So I think that that, that, is, that is a very similar, um, I think that that is a very, uh, that is a very similar and important concept uh, with that. Um, yeah, so if we look at yeah. lean, the five steps of lean are defined value from the customer's perspective. Then map the value stream. So how do we currently add value or create value for the customer? Then flow, then pull, then perfection. So I don't know how from those five steps, people got such a heavy focus on waste reduction of improving reducing waste everywhere. So to me, the waste reduction the should be waste reduction to improve flow should be the yeah. objective. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Waste reduction to, to improve flow. And so Max, you, you mentioned kind of value stream mapping. I think that that is a fairly common tool that I would imagine is used by practitioners of kind of all of these. Um, and that concept basically is, I mean, either you yourself go and walk the line or I, I've seen many people kind of bring in groups to have a conversation and you quite literally map out the, the flow, right? The production process. Yep. And so I've actually seen a lot of comments on LinkedIn about, you know, value stream mapping. Some people think it's, you know, a valuable tool. Other people think it's worthless. So I'm surprised at those different perceptions. So what do I use it for? So I use it for because, you know, we're trying to improve flow. So the value stream map gives us the information flow and it gives us the product flow or service flow. It doesn't matter if you're, you know, manufacturer or service provider. It's the steps that you take to convert the demand that the customer has into a deliverable that you're going to deliver to the customer. And so the value stream map helps us understand what are those steps and how can we improve the flow to give better service or better product to our customer. And so to me, I use it as a high level tool to understand 
where we have disruptions in the flow that are preventing us from giving better service or better products to the customer. Yes. No, I, I, so I think that that's an interesting concept or kind of conversation that you started, Max, with some people thinking that it's not valuable. I, I guess to me, that's, that's super interesting because especially like mid 2000s through like 2010s, like the, the concept of value stream mapping was, was all the rage. So I listened to a, a podcast. I think it was a lean podcast in which a, a woman, Karen Martin had come on and she actually wrote a book called value stream mapping. And the entire consulting company that she built was quite literally around. We're going to come in for three or four days. We're going to put all the important people in the room. We're going to spend the first day literally value stream mapping, I assume on paper back in the early 2000s, yeah. uh, what, the, what the flow was. And then we're going to kind of sit here and find ways to, again, I imagine increase flow and find ways to decrease bottlenecks as we would call constraints. Um, I, I don't know. I would say that if you sit down and actually value stream map, I think most people will be very surprised at how few people actually know what the flow looks like in their facility. And I think that that, that was one of the main like takeaways that, that I got from, uh, from the show that I listened to is that most people don't know what the flow looks like. And if you don't know what the flow looks like, you can't improve the flow. Like yes. if you don't know what the flow looks like, you can't improve the flow. So I, and, and I'm, I'm not going to, Max and I aren't going to come here and say, we want you to spend four days locked in a room with Max and I writing the flow of it on, you know, a big piece of, a big piece of paper and then trying to figure it out. But knowing what the flow looks like, at least in the theory of constraint, from the theory of constraint side, allows us to both visually see when you go and walk the facility, as well as like, pinpoint hey this is our map this is where our constraint is so we know that because the constraint is here let's figure out what we do to fix things and fix things is a very broad non-technical term yes. but once we fix things we, we know the constraint's going to move either down the line further down the line or, or further behind where the current constraint was and i don't know max like i, I feel like i would struggle if i didn't have even a simple map to be able to go and say, Hey, this is where I think that or th this is where the next constraint should be. Because if you don't have that, like they're just going to have skipped an entire department at some point, And they're going to be like, Oh yeah, that's Joe over there in the corner. He just comes in and he works 12 hours a day. We don't talk to him. We're not really sure what he does, but everything that we work on goes through Joe over there in the corner. <laughs> yeah. So but you're exactly right about the point about when I do the value stream map, it's very few people actually understand what is the flow. Yes. And they've been working in yes. a company for years. It's like, oh, I didn't realize that mm -hmm. that's how it worked. So people are good at, at understanding what happens within their department or function, but they're not good at understanding how their department or function is causing positive or negative effects in other departments. And yes. I'm amazed how many people, if you ask them the question, who's your customer? They don't know who their customer is. And very few people in the organization have the external customer. So we're not talking about external customers. It's like the work that you do, who do you hand it off to? And they're like, 
Mm-hmm. Well, that's a good question. I don't, I'm not sure I know all my customers. And if you don't know yep. your, who your customers are, how do you know what they need? And we look at it at value, right? So if I don't understand what value I provided to the next step in the process, how do I evaluate whether it's something that I should be doing or not doing? Yes. And Absolutely. so, so many times I, I, people are yes. doing stuff to pass along and they have no idea who's using that information or who's using that um, product. And so there becomes a huge disconnect. So where we see the biggest problems in companies is between functions. And there's a ton of sub-optimization going on. And we talked about it with the company we're working with now. It's like there's all this sub-optimization going on and you don't even know what's happening. People are trying to optimize their own performance. Yes. And it happens in every function, purchasing, maintenance, HR, operations, engineering, sales, marketing. It's happening in every function. Absolutely. No, I I would agree with that. So I guess, Max, so I've heard you certainly talk about who's your customer. Does that fall? Is that just like a normal question? Does that fall specifically under one of these thought processes that uh, that you've picked that question up? It really comes from Deming. So again, it's, you know, he's looking at breaking down the barriers between staff areas. That's one of his 14 points. And so I see all these barriers between functions that they don't talk to each other. They don't understand what the needs are and they complain about other functions. (laughs) So you can go into different departments and have them complain and they'll tell you what the barriers are by the complaints. Yep. (laughs) Absolutely. No, I, I, I like that. And to, to kind of go back to the beginning, the, the concept of what, uh, what Dr. Goldratt did for the first number of pages when he penned this, this thesis or this case study was very much kind of paying homage to everyone who had come before him yes. and all, all of the thoughts that they've done because I don't think that anyone working in manufacturing today, not to say that no one has original ideas, but I think that we've all kind of had ideas and then we've done a little bit of research and we realize that this is a pillar of something else that, that other people are, are working on. And perhaps there's just a name to the thought that we're going down. And perhaps the name was created 50 years ago. Um, this may or may not be a personal story of mine, uh, which is which is what I have uh, what, what I have told Max in the past. Um, but no, so I, I, I like this, Max. Uh, um, let's, let's pause for let's pause for a moment. We've kind of run down many of the points. We've kind of talked about where these interconnect. We've talked a little bit about flow and stability about value stream mapping is, is there anything in particular that you think we're missing on this? Um, The only other piece is the leadership. Okay. So Deming's 14 points again is a lot of focus on leadership and setting that direction, establishing the culture, establishing the mindset. 
And if leadership okay. isn't on board, isn't aligned, then the chance of the organization making significant improvements and growth is, is small. So my saying when I do my training is that if there's no leadership and commitment, you know, there's no leadership commitment to drive the company forward, the chance of success mm -hmm. is less than 20%. And I also say if there's no strategy that's in place to achieve some objective, the chance is less than 20%. So now I take the two mm -hmm. together, you know, no leadership commitment, no strategy of where we're yep. going. 20% times 20%, there's a 4% chance the company's going to make breakthrough, what we call breakthrough improvement. So the leadership okay. component is so important. Agreed. So the leadership component is important, which I think both, so, so we've talked about the culture needing to be there and a big commitment from Deming and kind of a, a big kind of push for everyone else that we've talked about either implementing or not implementing needs to be culture to have those sustained breakthrough improvements. Yep. Um, and to, to Max's last point about leadership and we need leadership involved. I, I guess the question becomes Max, most of the time when you find success, is it leadership who is ready to leverage that success or is it, I, I guess, yeah, like, I guess in your experience, do you find most of the time it's leadership that calls you in and say, Hey, Max, I'm willing to commit to going down this change. Can you help us change? Or do you find that leadership needs to go through a shift, either mindset or physical bodies wise in order to succeed in something like this? Yeah. So most cases it's not the leadership that's calling me in. It's usually mm -hmm. lower level managers that are frustrated and have all these problems that they're dealing with day to day. Yep. So they're the ones that usually connect with me first. And then of course we got to coach up to leadership because I'm amazed how much leadership can be disconnected from the operations. It's like, they don't understand everything that's going on. They don't understand the details. And so it's not leadership's goal to, establish all the details of what we need to do. It's enable the workforce to establish the details. So give them yes. the reins to be able to establish what's necessary and sufficient that needs to be in place. They need to set the goal of where we're going, but they don't need to determine all the details. I think that's a disconnect with leadership. Oh, I need to know everything. I need to know all the details. No, you don't. You need to set the direction and enable your workforce. And so the mindset from leadership is like lead, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and you don't need to do, right? You need to lead. Absolutely. So, so, so most of the time you're coaching up leadership. Do you generally find that you get leadership buy-in immediately? Do you see that once you started to show that breakthrough improvement, then you get leadership buy-in? Uh, where do you normally find leadership buy-in along your process? So that's why we do the design sprint because it's specifically yeah. designed to get buy-in from all levels, especially leadership. And so when we talk with the employees, we start to understand the frustrations. And then when we present that back to the whole team of these are issues that we're dealing with, 
Mm-hmm. It's, I think, sometimes uh, eye-opening for leadership to see these types of issues that are going on. Mm-hmm. And, of course, we're not there to discipline people. It's there, most people I see are a victim of the system. So they're trying to yes. do a good job, but because of the circumstances that they're working under, they're not able to do a good job. And most of that stems from the sub-optimization I talked about. So all we need is leadership to understand is what's system optimization and, and how, how that can get breakthrough performance. And system optimization doesn't come from optimizing all the elements below it, right? So it's not about optimizing sales in isolation. It's not optimizing marketing in isolation or purchasing or engineering or production. It's about how it works together as a system. Absolutely. That's the biggest mind shift that's necessary. I like that. I think that we will need to delve more into getting leadership buy-in. I would also like to delve more into, I mean, let's let's do a little bit more uh, on the show today about leadership buy-in. Um, I especially want to talk about coaching up, right? Okay. So maybe we can give some to, uh, maybe we can give some tools and tactics and tips for folks within organizations. Uh, like let, let's say that they're able to take that step back and see that there's there's a dis, we'll just call it a disconnect between leadership, right? And so, do you have some? Good. Actually, I know you have some, some good questions uh, that, that you you have people to ask leadership. So, so, Max, what are a couple of the questions that you want, especially new employees, to ask leadership and kind of everyone when they go in and realize there's maybe a disconnect between this group and the rest of the world? Yeah, so I, I like when I meet new employees that are new to a company because the thing I say to them is, you know, what, you can plead ignorance. So start yes. asking questions and you can ask questions because you can say, Hey, I don't know this business. I've never, you know, I haven't worked here before. I don't know the industry. So explain to me why this is happening. So I see the effects. So what you want to start with was what, what we call the undesirable effects you see, and then yep. start asking questions. Okay. Why are we having these effects? And mm-hmm. a lot of times you need to do your homework you know, if you're good in problem solving and cause and effect thinking, do your homework yep. and investigate why these things are happening. And once you do that, you're armed with a lot of information. Then you can start, go to leadership and start asking questions. And yes, it's like the child, right? Asking you questions, keep asking why you said <laughs> why, and eventually you can't answer yep. it, right? So then you'll they'll realize that, oh, they don't, really don't understand why it's happening. And so then you can start injecting some different ideas. So that's sort of my approach. Ask a bunch of questions. Then when they start to stumble, then say, okay, have you thought about this? So I gave you an example. One company that we worked with, they have a demand for some products that aren't that big. So they're sort of slow movers. But when they release the production order, they run a big order. So I'm like, why are you doing that? So you have a demand for 5,000 and you release 20,000. Why do you do that? And so the effect I see is they got all this excess inventory. 
and they have late orders. So how can you have excess inventory and late orders? The only conclusion is you're working on the wrong stuff. Yeah. So take the evidence that you have and say, okay, why are we releasing 20,000 when we only have demand for 5,000? And what you're going to hear is, oh, because it takes forever to set up this machine. Mm -hmm. Right. So they're automatically, I know that they're in the cost mindset of like, oh, to save time, we're going to run as many, we take, you know, eight hours to set up this machine. We're going to run it as much as we can because we don't want to yes. have a bunch of downtime with setup. So they're already in the cost reduction mindset of like, oh, we we're trying to minimize cost by running large orders. So then you need to recalibrate their mindset of why that's not the right mindset. Uh, I, I absolutely agree with you, Max. And I will tell everyone that I'm not sure you've lived until you've heard Max say this to five people in a row and just watch their eyes get big. And they're like, yeah, I really should go ask why we do this because I hate that we do it this way. I'm going to go ask people why we do this. And I have yet to see Max get kicked out of the facility for having everyone just uh, ask everyone why all these processes are the way they are. Um, oh, Dave and I had it this, Dave and I had it this week. So we're working with a company and they make um, their, uh, their continuous flow and they have a bunch of tanks of yep. storage tanks in process. And so we said to them, you know, the goal isn't to keep the tanks full. Like, yeah, we know that. I said, but the tanks are full. The, the tanks are full. Yeah. Why are they full? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know that they're not supposed to be full, but they are full. So why is that? Yes. And I don't think we've heard an answer yet. <laughs> no. No, we, we have not gotten an, an answer from that. So let me ask one last question that will tie us back to kind of the Deming's 14 points and Lean and Six Sigma and TQM and TOC. So I will preface this by saying I absolutely agree if we need 5,000 of a part that is a slow mover, we shouldn't make 20,000 of that part just to put 3X on stock to hold stock of finished goods and to put us in a bad position for the rest of the workflow because we have held this machine for four times longer than we need to be. But so, so we, we talk about, we talked about lean, we talked about how it's a flow and how it's about reducing waste. What I guess in, in the lean concept, Max, if it takes a long time to set up the machine, would they want to run more than the 5,000 they need to try to make up for the fact that it, it took them longer to longer to set up the machine and the machine was already down for a period of time because the setup time was long. Is it, is it a waste of movement to just run 5,000 then immediately change it back? So that's a good question. The, you know, producing more than, Overproduction from the lean perspective is waste, right? So producing more than what the customer is demanding within the replenishment cycle is waste. Mm -hmm. And so, but that can, that's in conflict with the cost thinking, right? If I mm -hmm. set this machine up for eight hours 
And then I only produce 5,000 parts. That setup cost is only amortized over 5,000 parts instead of 20,000 parts. So the cost per piece goes up. So the first rule we have is don't allocate cost to the product. <laughs> so, but that's what everybody does, right? And the cost accounting is allocation of cost. But we say, no, don't allocate costs. Well, when you don't allocate cost, it's like, okay, now we take that cost mindset out of the equation and we look at flow. So, mm -hmm. and we have ways to reduce setup. So instead of taking the mindset of running bigger batches to compensate yep. for the high setup, let's run smaller batches and figure out how to reduce the setup time. Now yes. we're in a much better position because we've opened up capacity from two perspectives, we reduce the overtime or we reduce the, the time to do the setup in half typically. And the runtime, we save, you know, three quarters of the runtime because we're only producing a quarter of the batch size. So what are we going to do with that free capacity? We're going to run other products that the customers are demanding that we're laid on. Yes. Okay. So I absolutely agree with your comments and everything you're saying in that respect, Max, I guess one last question to, uh, to wrap us up. Why would someone run 20,000 when they only needed 5,000 parts? Well, like, like how, how do people get to the point of it takes so long to set up? So I'm going to run four times what I need in order to have to run it less, but I'm going to put all of these finished goods that I don't get paid for on stock and I'm going to take a machine down uh, for four times longer when I'm not going to be able to run my normal product. Like what is the mindset that gets us to the point of I'm going to run more and hold finished goods on stock? So there's two, one is the cost mindset that we just talked yeah. about. And the second one's the inventory mindset. So if you look at a balance sheet, where does inventory fall? It falls in the asset category. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's a huge conflict between finance and operations because operations, we look at inventory as a liability. Finance looks at it as an asset. Well, it can't be an asset yes. and a liability at the same time. So Absolutely. what is inventory? Right? It's a <laughs> is it a liability or is it an asset? That is a good question. And for everyone listening, that will be a question that we ask at, that we answer at a, a future date, maybe surrounded by a bunch of uh, CFOs and accountants. Yes. And uh, yeah, and then, th th then Max will just get in a fist fight with them at that point. Now, uh, it, it, as long as you, you use appropriate accounting measures, uh, Max will absolutely be your best friend and show you how to save hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, every year. But, uh, but no, everyone, thank you for listening. I hope that you enjoyed episode four, in which we talked about Deming's 14 points, TOC, Lean, Six Sigma, TQM, uh, how we are literally standing on the shoulder of giants, uh, trying, to, trying to do something good, trying to share, I would say, our knowledge, but mostly Max's knowledge on all of this and kind of figuring out how we can help everyone use these tools, techniques, tricks in order to go ahead and implement uh, to go and make your facility run run better, uh, flow better, be more stable, uh, reduce variability, all of those things. Uh, Max and I have a very special episode five 
that we are working on, uh, and we hope you guys stay tuned uh, for that. Until next time, we do ask that you hit like and rate us five stars on uh, Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And Audible now does it. If you listen to Audible, please go ahead and give us five stars. That helps the algorithm in ways that we know but really don't want to discuss because that's a show in and of itself. But until next week, we'll see you guys soon. Bye-bye.